from the Word of God. But the invitation did bring with it certain complications and difficulties. I had to stop and think, now what do I want to preach upon? If I have given this one golden opportunity to lay upon you something that is on my heart. And a number of subjects came to mind, but it seemed to me the subject that perhaps is of interest to you and something that's very necessary for there to be a good deal of Christian exhortation and biblical instruction upon, especially for young people, if my experience with them has been accurate at all, is the subject of sex. In fact, I have a uh, friend who is a preacher and a professor. Uh, he and I teach in usually the same areas theologically and ethics and that sort of thing. He maintains that when he has an opportunity to speak before high school students, the one subject that is, of course, taboo, but the subject that he really believes if he's going to be relevant, he should speak on is that of masturbation. Sex is something which young people like to think about. They like to have jokes said about it, but to hear instruction from the Word of God is often very lacking in their lives. So I thought to myself, perhaps that would be a subject appropriate to bring to you this morning. Our age, our age is, of course, an age of sexual promiscuity, even worse, an age of sexual perversion. I think of what took place just a few weeks ago in San Francisco and was billed as Gay Pride Week. And the significance of that for our culture and for our lives, you realize that nowhere else in the Western world in the history of man outside of perhaps the city of Sodom could anybody have something called Gay Pride Week, that somebody could be proud of a form of perversion which is called abomination in the eyes of God. A fellow pastor in my denomination, Charles McElhenney, recently underwent a lawsuit in the city of San Francisco because he and his church dismissed an organist who was an avowed homosexual. And uh, this homosexual then went to various legal groups protecting the alleged rights of homosexuals and brought suit against the church. That's the kind of world in which we live in which we have gay pride, but those who are against the idea of homosexuality or at least don't want it to be part of their church and its worship are brought before the courts of our land to defend their integrity and their rights. One of the books I have written, the subject of ethics, perhaps the one that's received the most notice in the general press and reviews, has been a book on homosexuality. I'm grateful to God and give him the glory for the nice reviews I've received, but they're not all nice reviews. Uh, the public ones have been, but the kinds of letters I get from homosexuals who read it sometimes are not favorable. In fact, just last week I received an anonymous letter, three or four pages, single-spaced, in which uh, an avowed homosexual who says he's a Christian wrote and was just uh, really upset about what I said in my book and how this form of perversion comes under the judgment of God in all circumstances. Homosexuality is an abomination. Do I need to poll you on this today? Do I need to convince you of that? Should I use a little persuasion that the Word of God teaches how perverted and disgusting and ugly is the sin of homosexuality? Paul tells us, Romans the first chapter, in words which are just as strong in the Greek as you'll hear them in the English. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts the sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Because of this God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. 
In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Homosexuality is portrayed by Paul not simply as some kind of inner disposition that somebody is born with and just can't help. He portrays it as something which engages in desires that are perverse in the eyes of God, desires for which one is held personally accountable, desires which are to be done away with. Homosexuality is an ugly sin. I remember so many years ago, I believe I was sec in second or third grade in elementary school. That's a while back, but my recollection of this particular day is vivid. In that particular day, as I guess in all days among young people, there are particular terms that are used to describe people, either jokingly or in a bitter way, uh, to criticize people, to, to put them down. And that particular day, many years ago, the word fairy was, at least in the culture where I was brought up, a word that was cast out without much thought as a criticism of somebody. And we're talking about, you know, a small elementary child. And I remember one day being out on the playground and being angry, certainly not a righteous response, but I said, you fairy, to somebody. And the teacher pulled me aside, took me, Greg, do you know what that means? And of course I said, of course I do. That's somebody who likes boys rather than girls. Oh, how little I knew of how ugly that really was. And that it wasn't simply having a friend of the same gender or emphasizing that, but it involved things which are absolutely too ungodly and perverse to describe here in this place. Homosexuality is an ugly and abominable sin. In fact, in the Old Testament, when God prepares to explain his condemnation of homosexuality, where I remind you it was a capital offense among God's people, God doesn't stop to say, now homosexuality is wrong for the following reasons. Now, a population problem can't be taken care of, you see, if we have people engaged in homosexuality, or the family structure will break down, or this, or that, or the other. God simply uses the Hebrew word toevah. Why shall you stone to death those who engage in such acts? Because it is toevah. What does toevah mean? Well, it's hard to find an English word strong enough. It means abomination. In the eyes of God, this is filthy and indecent behavior, contrary to the natural order that he has ordained for one flesh union between a husband and a wife. Homosexuality is called often in our society sodomy. Why? Why the word sodomy? Well, those of you who have read the Old Testament, familiar with that, it's not hard to figure out. It's called sodomy because it goes back to the town of Sodom and particularly the biblical account of what happened to Sodom and God's judgment upon it. Let me rehearse that story for you. Abraham and Lot have a parting of the ways. Abraham, the elder, tactful leader of the family, says, Lot, you take first choice. Lot, being the youthful, culturally aware man that he was, wanted to pitch his tent towards Sodom, toward Gomorrah. He wanted to be where the action was. Abraham, you can go back in the hills here and live. But Lot more and more became assimilated into the life of Sodom. 
Nevertheless, he was something of a righteous witness in the midst of that, the Bible tells us, day by day. The book of 2 Peter tells us he was vexed by the lawless and vile deeds of the people of that town. What kind of vile deeds is the Bible talking about? Well, one particular illustration will sum it up. On a particular day, God sent two angelic messengers to the city of Sodom. Remember, when angels come to earth, they don't always come singing hymns with harps and wings and all the rest. God often sends angels, messengers, who look just like ordinary human beings. And these two messengers came into town and were going to lodge for the night in the town square. Not at all uncommon. That would be unheard of, of course, in our culture. But back in those days, that was what strangers did if they didn't know somebody or have relatives in the town. These men were going to lodge there. And Lot, knowing that this was to be the case, begged them, strong language in the original, begged them to come home with him and he would give them a place to rest for the night. Why didn't Lot want these men out in the town square? Well, if we have any questions about it, the Bible text answers them for us because later that evening, all of the men of Sodom surrounded the house of Lot. And what did they want? They wanted Lot to send out these two men that they might know them. A very pregnant expression meaning to have sexual relations with them. Even as the Bible says, Adam knew Eve and she had a son. And so these men are going to have homosexual relations with the visitors. And Lot, not having his sanctified wits about him, comes outside to reason with them and says, No, take my daughters instead. They have not known men. But the men of Sodom are not satisfied with that. They demand, rather, their perversion and then the angels strike them all with blindness. Lot is to flee from the city of Sodom. Its sins have now overflown. God's toleration has ended. Lot is to leave. Lot is to take his family. They aren't even to look back. They are to make their ties with Sodom so cut, so severed, that there would be not even a glance backward. Of course, Lot's wife was not able to abide that, being so tied to the life of Sodom, so curious about its outcome. She did glance back and immediately was turned to a pillar of salt. And what did God do to the city of Sodom? In the words of the Bible, he reduced it to ash by sending upon it fire and burning sulfur. Very similar to a volcanic eruption. And the people of Sodom were all destroyed for their perversion. Now, do I need to convince you that homosexuality is an abominable, ugly, terrible sin? I don't think so. I think you all come in here convinced of that. If you have any familiarity with the kinds of things that are propagated in this area, the things that are promoted in this area as homosexuality, if you've had any kind of uh, social contact with that at all, undoubtedly your soul too recoils in disgust at the very idea. But I want to ask the question this morning, because I don't want to talk about sex, I want to ask the question, what sin do you think is worse than homosexuality? A number of people that I have run into on college campuses pretty much assume that since I wrote a book on homosexuality that I'm afflicted with what's called homophobia, the uh, fear and loathing of homosexuals, and it's for some kind of deep, you know, twisted psychological reason that I have to write these condemnatory words. 
Or as I write them because my obligation is to reflect what God himself says, and that's what God says. But nevertheless, many people think that in my estimation, homosexuality must be at the very top of the list of things which are degrading and sinful in the eyes of God, but it's not, because it's not in the Bible. What do you think, according to the Word of God, is worse than that abominable, ugly, terrible sin called homosexuality? What is worse than sodomy? What is the sin more severe than sodomy? The other day, one of my um, students overheard that that was the topic on which I was to speak, and it was suggested that perhaps blasphemy was that sin, worse than sodomy. Blasphemy is terrible, of course, and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. But blasphemy is not the sin I'm thinking about as being worse than sodomy. Maybe it's murder. That's even worse, of course, than having perverted sexual relations with people. Maybe somebody who engages in something like a chainsaw massacre. That person is more sinful than a sodomite, a homosexual. But that's not the answer either. The answer, in a very interesting way, is indicated to us by our Lord himself in Luke the 17th chapter when he wants to tell his followers of the kind of day it will be when he returns in judgment on the world. Jesus says in Luke 17 verse 28 it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building but the day Lot left Sodom fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus says, the day in which the Son of Man is revealed and I return in judgment on this world, it will be like the days of Lot. Yes? And what days were those? Jesus says they were days in which they ate and they drank. They planted and they builded. They bought and they sold. And our inclination, being good Bible students, is to say, oh yes, Jesus, and you forgot. They were sexual perverts too, right? But Jesus doesn't mention that. That has distressed many commentators. It's almost humorous the word, that it twists the word of God to see the way commentators try to read into those very simple words some indication of sexual perversion. They were eating and drinking and buying and selling. Obviously they were, they were engorged with food or they were... We don't have to say these things. Jesus is not talking about some kind of moral excess in an outward and visible and public and dramatic way. Now he says there is a sin worse than sodomy. And it's eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, and ignoring the word of God. Utter indifference to what God says and being absorbed in the affairs of this life. Just the ordinary affairs. I mentioned in a sermon last Sunday in my own church, uh, having to do with this passage, that passages speaking of the days of Noah where they were marrying, enter, entering into marriage and so forth, they're not talking about terrible wickedness. In our day, I'd be happy if there was more marriaging going on. I mean, that's what we need. No, no, Jesus is saying they were just so consumed in their own lives and their own affairs that they couldn't listen to the preaching of Noah. They couldn't listen to the preaching of Lot. And that's what it's going to be like on the day in which he returns. Utter indifference to the word of God. 
That, in fact, is the sin worse than sodomy. Our text for this morning is Luke, the 10th chapter, where Jesus compares those who reject the word of God preached by his followers to the judgment that will come upon Sodom on the final day. I'll read for you the entire passage, the first 16 verses. Hear the word of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its, into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down into hell. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And thus far, the reading of God's word. The emphasis in this passage is clearly upon our reaction to the preached word of God. Jesus, in the first two verses, sends out 72 foreshadowing of the preaching of the gospel to the nations, understood by the Jews to be 72 nations in number. He sends out 72 to harvest God's field and draw people in. In verse 5, he is, they are told by Jesus to proclaim the benediction of God upon the households where they come. In verse 9, they are to declare the coming of God's kingdom upon these people. In verse 10, they are to say something in particular to those who refuse in verses 13 and 14, Jesus refers to his own ministry in three particular cities and the way the preaching of God's word was received there. And then verse 16, which is the final verse in the passage, the climax to his instruction, he who listens to you listens to me, he who rejects you rejects me. The emphasis you see is upon the word of God and how it is received. There's a good deal in the passage that would be worthy of our consideration this morning. But I want to focus particularly upon what Jesus says about towns and people, individuals, that reject the preaching of God's Word. Those who are not prepared to receive it in faith and obedience. He says, But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, 
go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. We won't even allow the dust that is settled on our sandals from your town to go with us as we leave. That was a terrible judgment against these cities, something which we probably don't understand given our own culture. We don't wear sandals, we don't worry about dust, and we certainly don't shake the dust off our feet before we leave someplace that we're pronouncing a curse upon. What did this mean? Why did they do this? To understand it, in that cultural setting, you must remember that the Jews understood that the promised land was a holy land where God's temple stood and where the holy of holies, the holiest place, was to be found. And they understood that their land and their country was different from all the others, from all the other nations of the world, that they were Jews and not Gentiles. And so when a godly Jew would return from Gentile territory, having gone out of the promised land, having left Palestine, returning back into it, that Jew would stop take off his sandals, clap them together to get rid of all the dust, and then walk into the promised land. The shaking the dust off his shoes indicated that he drew a distinction between those who were on the inside, those who were on the outside of the kingdom as they understood it. And Jesus says, you want to see how we mark off how we delineate between those who are in and those who are out of the kingdom. He says, when a town will not listen to what you preach, then you shake the dust off your sandals. They are rejected. And the fantastic thing about this is that these were Jewish towns, not Gentile towns. They were going into Jewish towns. And Jesus was saying, you consider yourself God's people. You are not. The dust of our sandals we shake off against you. You are set outside, even as you understand the Gentiles to be outside the kingdom of God. Jesus says, however, you declare to them the kingdom of God is near. Well, let's be away with all these ideas to think the kingdom of God is nothing but blessing, nothing but goodness, nothing but nice things for those who want to receive it. And those who reject the kingdom, well, they've just missed all these nice things. You see, you either stay the way you are and overlook the benefit of the kingdom and things continue nicely, or you can have an even nicer life. You can become a Christian. You can submit to the kingdom and the rule of God, and then you'll have eternal blessings. Jesus says it's not that way. The preaching of the kingdom cuts this way and that. It's a two-edged sword. It is a savor of life unto life, to be sure, but it's also a savor of death unto death. And when a people, when a city, when a town, a household, an individual will not receive the word of God, the kingdom of God has still done its work there. And all that's terrifying. The rule of God is not only a rule for the benefit of his people, it's a rule for the cursing of his enemies. Jesus says you declare the kingdom not just where you're welcome, you declare the kingdom where you are rejected. And then he puts these fateful words before us. He says... For I tell you, in that day, what day? What day is he talking about that day? In the Jewish mentality, there wouldn't have been any question that he was talking about that great and final day of judgment. When God will consummate all of human history and separate the righteous from the unrighteous. We don't think that way today. We have so many days occupying our thoughts. We have birthdays and we remember holidays and 
we have Lincoln's birthday and Martin Luther King's birthday and we have this and that thing to remember. Somebody said, well, on that day, the following is going to happen. We'd all think, well, on what day? Let's get out our calendars and check. But not for the Jews. When Jesus said on that day, they knew what he was talking about. The final day of judgment. He says that on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for those who have not reacted properly to the word of God. More tolerable than for Sodom? How tolerable was God towards Sodom? Fire and brimstone reduced them to ash. And he says on the day of judgment, as bad as that appears to you, on the day of judgment there is one sin worse than sodomy, and it's the sin of rejecting the preached word of God. Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum, you cities where I have ministered and preached and done these mighty works and miracles. Woe to you because you've seen, you've heard, and yet even Tyre and Sidon, which are standard examples in the Old Testament prophets of cities that would not hear the word of God, hardened cities against the preaching of God's word. Even Tyre and Sidon would have repented, Jesus says. They would have sat in sackcloth and ashes. They would have had a goat's hair shirt upon their chest. And they would have poured ashes upon their head, repenting of their sins. If they had heard what you have heard and seen what you have seen, and Jesus says, you, Capernaum, you especially, where Jesus made his hometown during his years of ministration. You, Capernaum, where I've had special ministry, special preaching sessions, an abundance of miracles. You, do you think you'll be lifted up to the skies? Do you expect to be exalted in the eyes of God just because I made this my hometown? Just because I've been in your midst? Just because of all these miracles done here? He says, forget it. You into hell will go. And Jesus ends by saying, Here's the truth that I'm trying to express. When I send my messengers and you reject what they say, you reject me. And when you reject me, you've rejected the one who sent me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all disregarded, are all done despot when we will not submit to the Word of God in obedience and in faith. Not welcoming the Gospel not acting appropriately in response to what is preached is worse than sodomy. A few minutes ago I asked you, what is the sin worse than sodomy? What went through your minds? Did you ever stop to ask yourself if maybe your own besetting sins were the sins worse than sodomy? Of course not. You worse than a sexual pervert? You worse than a sexual degenerate? Of course not. And I say, of course. To whom much has been given, much will be, will be expected. To whom God gives light, he expects to see life. And when he doesn't, he will pronounce the confirmation of death upon you. Could it be that you are guilty of the sin? Worse? Then sodomy? How do you respond to the Word of God? What is your attitude when the Bible is preached? Would any of us dare to kibitz during chapel? Dare to yawn? 
dare to let our daydreaming take us way out somewhere else in life? Would any of us dare to disregard what was being said if we were to have as our chapel speaker this morning our Lord Jesus Christ himself? Oh, not at all. No, of course. Boy, we'd be all listening. We'd be all ears if Jesus were to come. And Jesus says, when you don't listen to the one that I send, you don't listen to me. How do we react when the Bible is taught in our Bible classes? Is that a time for passing notes? Is that a time for disregarding again? Or do we ever stop to consider that this is in fact the holy word of God that we're dealing with? Jesus says, it is worse than sodomy for you to disregard what I am saying, for you to react improperly to the preached word of God, for you not to show faith and appropriate obedience and response. Westminster Confession tells us that by saving faith, the Christian believes whatsoever is taught in the word of God for the authority of God speaking there trembling at the threatenings and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. Do you believe what the Bible says? Or do you ever find yourself saying, yeah, who cares? Or, come on, could that have happened? No, that isn't God's attitude. By saving faith, the Christian believes if it says it in the Bible, it's true. But more than that, you might say, oh, we wouldn't ever say the Bible's wrong. Would you ever live like the Bible's wrong? When the Bible pronounces that we are under the wrath and under the curse of God for our sins, do you ever tremble? Have you ever trembled? I don't mean because of the cold outside this morning and you forgot to bring a heavy enough wrap. Do you know what it is to tremble from inside and not just because of the cold on your external skin? To tremble under the wrath of God! And then to lay hold of the promises of the gospel like you'd lay hold of your loved one and say, oh, praise God for these promises. Do you react that way to the word of God? If you don't, do you have saving faith? Jesus says, it is worse than sodomy for you not to give the appropriate response to my word. And do we study this word? I am over and over and over again disappointed to find out how little we know in general, as 20th century, over and over and over again disappointed to find out how little we know, in general, as 20th century American Christians, but how little we know at Newport Christian High School of the basic teachings of the Bible, of the elementary history of the Bible. Do we really think this is the Word of God? I tell you, pagans treat their idols better than we treat the Bible. Pagans in other lands, they polish and they dust and they put their idols in the best place and they pay attention to them and they worship them and they go through all this ritual for nothing. And if you could convince a pagan that you really had two sentences from the Lord God Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth and Redeemer of His people, if they could believe that they had but two literal, verbal communications from God, Boy, they'd, enshrine, they'd write it in gold. They'd memorize it. They'd understand everything they could about it. And yet we who are Christians have 66 books of revelation from God. And the book gathers dust. I tell you, the pagans treat their idols better than we treat the Bible. We ignore it. 
We don't tremble at it. We don't embrace it. And oh, we don't obey it. James says, you aren't to be hearers of the Word only, but doers as well. And where is the doing of God's Word on our campus? Where are those Christ-like attitudes that the Bible commends? Where are those works of obedience that are the evidence of gratitude for the salvation God has brought to us? Do we hear and do what the Bible says? Do we pay attention to it? Do we respect it? Jesus says that on the day of judgment, there will be one who judges those who reject his word. We say, we know who that is. Well, that's Jesus, of course, and he will. But in John 12, he says, those who reject my word have one who judges them, even my word will reject them. The point I want to make this morning in chapel is that this is a very dangerous book. It's dangerous. It's like a two-edged sword. It's going to cut one way or another. God's word never comes back to him void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent. What purpose is being accomplished in your life this morning? Is the word of God working righteousness and health and saving faith in you? Or is it hardening your heart, bringing about indifference, disregard, and disobedience? It's going to do one or the other. Don't think you can take it or leave it. Are you guilty of the sin worse than sodomy? Let's pray. Lord, would you ask that by your Spirit you would sensitize our hearts and our ears that we might hear and hear down into our deepest recesses in our heart of hearts the truth of the Scriptures and that we might give it that saving response that is appropriate. How we pray you would take away our insensitivity do take away our ignorance of the Scriptures and take away our ignoring of the Scriptures and make them a delight to us and a light to our path. Make the Scriptures life for us, life-sustaining. Give us a desire for the nourishment of the Word of God so that even as newborn babes desiring the sincere milk would so desire to hear the Word of God. And God, do not allow us to hear it only and to pride ourselves even in being able to take tests and to answer questions about it. Make us doers of this word lest we come under the dreadful judgment that we are worse than sodomites. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When he heard about this, took the unforgiving servant and cast him into the outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Oh, we can ask God to forgive us. But remember that if we ask God to forgive us, that means that we've been humiliated by our own sins and humbled before our own need. And those who are humble have hearts ready to forgive others. And if you haven't got that heart, if you haven't been humbled by your own sin so that you're willing to forgive others, you probably are not sincere in asking to be forgiven yourself. You don't think that God has that much to forgive if you aren't willing to turn and say the very little in comparison that this brother owes me, I should be willing to forgive. And so Jesus tells us how to pray. Go on providing food day by day. Forgive us our sins. We have a forgiving heart toward others. And don't bring us into temptation. 
This has been very misunderstood. So many people say, but wait a minute, God doesn't tempt anybody. Why do you pray, don't lead us into temptation? The answer to that is an understanding that that phrase, into temptation, to enter into temptation in the Semitic mind meant to yield to temptation. And so the prayer, lead us not into temptation, is really a prayer asking God that we might be strengthened so as not to yield to temptation. Don't allow us to succumb to the seductions and the tribulations and trials of life. And the greatest temptation that I want to warn you against this morning in closing, the temptation that you should watch out for because it leads you away from the path of true love to God, is the temptation to think that there are so many things that are urgent in your life that it is perfectly all right to crowd out the important thing of hearing God and praying to Him daily. If you don't get this straightened out in your life now, it's just going to be another long cycle in your life of despair and service that is not really to its fullest for God. Recently, we were in the home of somebody who was telling us their view of guidance, how God guides his people. And so we pressed, it turned out, for a particular illustration. And what we found out is that God was guiding almost like a, some kind of supernatural Ouija board that in prayer, somebody could hear audibly a certain passage of Scripture, and then you open that passage of Scripture, and somehow that answers a question that, by the way, by any sensible evaluation, had nothing to do with the question. But nevertheless, God was giving some hidden guidance in that way. Well, what that comes from is from hearts that don't understand and minds that don't perceive that the way God guides us is by our presenting prayers and petitions in the proper form as the Lord's Prayer leads, leads us to do, and then letting God speak through His Word. Daily, you need to hear God's Word. Daily, you need to be people of prayer. And if your life is weak and our congregation is weak, we can lay it up to this one thing that we haven't yet learned, how to love God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for the lack of love that we have displayed, the self-sufficiency that we have displayed, the attitude that says we can get by without you. Because we know in the midst of this worship, after the hearing of your word, oh, that's such a lie. We can't get by without you. Lord, we ask that you might impress upon us, not just for these moments, but for the next few days, indeed throughout this week, and hopefully for the rest of our lives, that the most important thing, the one thing needful, is that we hear your word and pray. Lord, we pray that the urgent things of our life would not crowd out what is most important. Allow us to love you according to your prescription. Help us to love you, not in a way that we devise, but in the way that you have perfectly set down. Help us to love you through the word and prayer. For it's in Jesus' name that we come. Amen.